the man of a thousand voices, is lying in a coma with a 1,000 to 1 chance of living. Doctors are desperately trying to get a response. Will his wife and son ever hear him speak again? The leading physician looks up at a cartoon playing on the hospital TV and hatches a plan that might just break the silence and bring this famous voice back from the brink of death. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. She's dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Hi, I'm Phil Cogan. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast, where I talk to mavericks, innovators, and disruptors. People who take chances. Those who swerve off the predictable road, face their fears, and refuse to say no. Amazingly resilient people who are motivated and tenacious. Those who have said bucket and who epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. My special guest on this Bucket podcast is the son of Mel Blanc, known around the world as the man of a thousand voices, heard in over 5,000 cartoons. Mel Blanc is perhaps the most influential person in the voice acting industry. Most of us grew up listening to his voices of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Sylvester, and Barney Rubble, just to name a few of the more than 1,000 voices he mastered. Mel's only child is Noel Blank, who turns 80 this year. Noel is a living testament to Hollywood's royalty, and today's chat is a chance to rewind to the incredible golden era of Hollywood and hear firsthand stories about growing up surrounded by movie icons. So tell us about your dad. He was at the top of his gigs at that time. So he would have been how old in 1961? 51. So he's 51 years old, okay. And he's just gotten back from San Francisco and had dinner at the house. He had done a number of commercials in San Francisco, flown back, and said, I got to drive into town because I've got a gig at 8 o'clock. And it was at the studio on Coenga Boulevard in Hollywood. And uh, he says, I've got the gig at 8 o'clock, so I better leave now. It was about 7. And he never called my mom when he got there. And it's unusual because he usually called her. And she called the police and said, do you have any accidents on Sunset Boulevard? They said, yes, there was an accident right around UCLA, which is Dead Man's Curve, known for years. Later, Jan and Dean sang the song Dead Man's Curve, right down by the athletic field coming out of Bel Air. And uh, he's at the hospital at UCLA. I was at a friend's house. They called me up. They drove me over there. Camera crews were all over the place shooting. I didn't know what hit us because there were so many camera crews there shooting us getting out of the cars to go see Mel. He had broken nearly every bone in his body, and he was in a coma for about 14 days thereafter. So they didn't expect him to live. And we tried to rouse him every day by going and say, Pop, can you hear me? And my mom would say, Melvin, can you hear me? Mel, can you hear me? Nothing. One time, a Dr. Conroy came in. He was a brain surgeon at that time. And he was looking at the television that was up in, in the room that my dad was in, in intensive care. And he saw the Warner Brothers logo in the cartoons. He got an idea. And he went over to Mel's bed. He was in a plaster of Paris body cast now, up to his... I guess up to his vocal cords here. All the Pretty way much up, every bone broken. Way. And both 
legs straight out with a bar in between them. And, uh, and a huge body cast, I mean, completely covered. And he went over to Mel and said, Mel, can you hear me? Mel, can you hear me? No. He says, Bugs Bunny, can you hear me? And my dad said, What's up, Doc? So, Porky, can you hear me? I can hear you, Doc. Daffy, certainly I hear you. He was completely out of, he knew exactly what was happening at that time. Completely, though. And he looked at my mom and said, gee, weren't we supposed to be in Hawaii about this time? Where am I? And my mom says, look down and you'll see where you are. You just made it through dead man's curve. Wow. Did the doctor laugh when, when this happened? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, oh, he couldn't believe it. What a smart doctor, by the way. <laughs> right? <laughs> but the Hawaiian paper and the Honolulu Herald had him dead already. Wow. Mel, uh, Bugs Bunny dies. Oh, yeah. It was pretty terrible. And, uh, of course, the, the, these odd people in Hollywood that would come in and, and go up to Joe Barbera or go over to Warner Brothers and say, Mel's going to die. I can do some of his voices. They'd kick him out. They'd kick these people While out. he was lying While in a coma. While he was in a coma. They were there. Joe Barbera told me that three or four people came in there and said, oh, I can do his voices. And, they said, That's, and Joe said, I tell you what, you'll never work here again. That's the end of that. And he would tell him that. Says so you got him dead before he's gonna, before he's dead. For you, not just the idea of losing him as a, as a father, but the idea that the world would have lost him at that point must have been incredibly. It was amazing and upsetting. It, it really uh, hit home when I the mail that would come in and the phone calls. They had to put in on about a, a three or four extra operators because he was getting calls from all over the world to see how he was. Were there were people putting things like. You know, carrots wrapped in silver. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. So what happened when he got better? How quickly could he get back into work? Well, we got back to work because after the accident, I built a studio in the Pacific Palisades where they lived, my mom and, and my In dad, the house? In the house. I, I had a bedroom next to a little kind of a den, and that den became the studio. So I put all the tape recorders in there and then ran lines underneath the house to the bedroom so that the microphones could come down over his bed. And we did the first 65 episodes of the Flintstones with him flat on his back. He did the Flintstones as well. He was Barney Rubble and Dino the Dinosaur. And the cast would gather around the bed, and he would be in He would sit in the bed. He would lay in the bed because the... The, uh, the microphone was suspended over his head and he was in a full body cast so he couldn't get up more than about 40 degrees, ah. 35 degrees from the body. And so he did most of it on his back, laying down and uh, holding the script up like this. Was, was this something you had to, like, Dad, you've got to do this? Or was this something he was chomping at the oh, bit to do? Oh, he was chomping at the bit to do it. Oh, he wanted to do he it. Was, he was a workaholic? Yes. And how old were you at that point? Uh, I was uh, 30 years... He, he was born 1908, and um, I was born 1938, so I was 30 years younger. So I was 21. You were 21, and were you working with him at that point? Yes. And I started working with him when I used to sit on his knee, and he says, can you do uh, my voices? I say, <laughs> what, a three-year-old do your voices? He says, I try it. Yeah, we jumped on. Okay. Was he constantly egging you on to Oh, sure. To, he to thought I was the only one that could do it. Really? But yes. And how did you go? Were you, were you good at it? No. I mean, obviously you got these well, ones done. Am I good? I'm not great at it. 
No one is great at it. It takes about 25 people to do what he does now. Really? There are a couple of really good guys. I can do Bugs and Porky and Daffy Tweety, Sylvester, maybe eight or nine, and sound like them for a while. But when you start taking it into long form, longer than, yeah, yeah, jump dog, a little longer than that and talk about, it becomes very difficult to stay in character. With Mel, he became the character and could stay in it as long as you want. But uh, I didn't want to really be a voice actor. I wanted to be a director. And you did and, that. And that's what I did. I directed him for years and years and years. So was there a pivotal change in your relationship after your dad came back and you're 21 years old? After I got out of the, the service, I yeah. was uh, a lieutenant in the Army. And uh, I got out of the service a couple of years later. Uh, we started a company called uh, Mel Blank Associates. And we did funny commercials for a lot of clients, a but huge number of clients. You didn't just do like a few commercials. You did... We did a lot of commercials. How many commercials do you think you did? Uh, 9,000 maybe. 9,000 yeah. commercials. <laughs> yeah. And you were, well, you were this young director? 30, 30 or 40 years, you know, uh, that many. Yeah. Wow. And I had just taken theater arts at UCLA, so I know how to go from stage right to stage left. And yeah. That, but I didn't know how to But this partnership with your dad, what, what was that like? It was great. We had so much how fun How did it work? How, what was the dynamic? He would say, uh, I cue the mic and say, we're doing this, this, for this, this yep. project. Uh, Bugs Bunny, take one. And he'd do his... Could you give him notes? Or... No, I didn't. Did give anybody him notes. ever I said, give Dad, him let's notes? Do that. I'd say, Dad, let's try that again. My, the mic, uh, you were a little off mic. If uh, I didn't hear it exactly. Uh, and without saying that, gee, that was terrible, Dad. But he right. never was. Right. I could say, could you do that one more time right on mic? Because he could usually do things on the first take. Wow. It was amazing. He's so synonymous with voices, of course. Yes, of course he did. And Porky Pig and Daffy Duck and Sylvester and Tweety and so many more. Tasmanian Devil. Oh, by the way, the Tasmanian Devil near your country. Yeah. He learned how to do the Tasmanian Devil when he was on a trip to Tasmania in Australia. They loved the cartoons in Australia. And uh, in Tasmania, he saw this little Tasmanian devil. You know what they look like? A Absolutely. woodchuck. And they eat everything and they grind through everything. And uh, he says, my gosh, it just it gets in the way of whatever it's in the way. That, that's what he takes care of. So that was a, oh boy. You know, he would, wow. he, that's how he came up with a Tasmanian devil. Your dad was special. He, special. Special. They called him the man of a thousand voices, yes. but he could actually do more than a thousand. He did about 1,500. And that's what this book is about when he was a kid. When he was a little kid, this book that says Melvin the Mouth, and Catherine, my wife, wrote this book. It took her about six years before she could get the artist that she wanted to do it. And in this book, it tells about Mel as a little boy and the troubles that he got into because he was Melvin the Mouth. In school, he got in big trouble because he used to run up and down the halls and do shtick, as we call it. And that's where he invented the voice of Woody Woodpecker, the hee <laughs> the laugh. That was in the halls of the school, uh, elementary school named Failing. Can you imagine an elementary school named Failing? <laughs> so, so, so he, he probably got on his reports, talks too much. Oh, talks too much. You stand out in the hall. You know, you can't listen. Mouthing to, off all the mouthing time. Mouthing off all the time. Sure. And, and so, and so they, he grew up from, from an early age and he was discouraged from 
what eventually made him famous. Sure, the kids called him a complete blank because his name was spelled B-L-A-N-K. His father's name was B-L-A-N-K. I didn't And they called him a complete blank. You'll never meet to, uh, amount to anything. You're a complete blank. And little did they know they were listening to a genius. He is such a genius that there's been nobody else like him ever because he had an eight-octave range... He had the thickest vocal cords. But it, put that in some context for us. When you say, I mean, that's what a piano has eight That's about octaves. eight octaves. Okay. So he could get beep and way double down, low. Deep. Way, 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 way down there. Double that. And why? What, what, what was it that he had? His vocal cords were very, very thick, like an opera singer's. In fact, they had measured Enrique Caruso's and said that they were very similar because one day I said, Dad, you got to get your vocal cords measured. How do you measure vocal cords, they by the way? They sent a camera down his throat, and he never forgave me for that. <laughs> but it was important to you for, to, know, I had to know. Dad, you've got, you've got thick vocal cords. We need to check them out. And he had perfect pitch. Who has perfect pitch? Not many people. You could sit on your piano, yeah. and he could tell you what notes you were sitting on. You could give him a lead sheet for Bugs Bunny with just a single note lead sheet, and he could sing harmony with all the characters without looking at any more music. And he, when he heard a dialect, he could pick it up instantaneously. His ear was amazing. But even more so, people didn't realize his, his facial contractions. What he could do with his face was amazing. So when he was recording, we would sit in the booth and look at him. And I'd say, can you turn the sound off for a second and I'll tell you what character he's doing. His whole countenance became the character. He really metamorphosized into those characters so you could tell whether he was doing Yosemite Sam or Tweety. He became small, large. Bugs, he, he, he was an actor. Bug, uh, I think Lou Costello and Bud Abbott, which were a comedy team in this country for many years yeah. with radio and television and movies, said, they signed a picture that says, the best actor I know, Mel Blanc. He was an incredible actor. Stanislavski method actor because he became the characters. His whole body transmogrified to that kind of character. But he's not famous for being in front of a camera. No. No. Did he People ever, didn't even know what he I looked mean, like. I mean, with all that talent, didn't he want to be in front of a camera? No, he hated it. So going from being Melvin the, the mouth uh, to getting into a career, how did that happen? So did he finish school? Did he graduate? No. No, he didn't finish school. He didn't finish high school. But he became the youngest orchestra leader in the country at one time. He was 17. But how did that happen? Because he had perfect pitch. He could hear. He could pick up an instrument and play it. He played the tuba. He played the string bass. He could play the piano. He could hear. He was that great an ear. And he could conduct. And his voice, his singing voice... But did he have formal training? No. His singing voice sounded like Crosby. I mean, he just was the most multi-talented person I ever, ever met. And he never knew it himself. He was... Humble? Oh, my gosh. You could, it, people would have thought he was a shoe salesman from Kansas City or something, you know? Right. He was it, totally humble. So, totally 17, humble. he's conducting. He's, he's musical director? or Yes. Yeah. And conducting. And conducting, and then... All over the And Northwest. then what happened? And he got tired of that, and radio was just coming in. So he and his wife, my mom, Estelle decided that they would do a radio show together after he had done a few alone and became famous on the radio up in Portland because he was doing all this shtick, all these voices. So they worked on a show together called Cobwebs and Nuts, and it was on for uh, 
every day, every night at 11 o'clock for an hour, they had to write it. She did all the female voices and he did all the male voices. So it was a show that they, he learned to do radio there in Portland for $15 a week combined, the two of them. And, and how old said, were they at that time? Mm, 28, 29, 30. Right. And they said, instead of star- starving up here, they we'll did it go down to L- L.A. and see what happens. And they stayed with my mom's folks here in, uh, in Los Angeles. And he kept knocking on the doors of Warner Brothers because he knew he could, he was listening to the voices. He was looking at these cartoons in the theaters. He would see these old cartoons in the theater and said, my God, the voices are just terrible. And he tried to get into Warner Brothers. God, it and must be so frustrating for him. Knocked on the door and the fellow says, hey, we got all the voices we want. And I said, how can you have that? He says, because we have these people that are on a retainer because they sign contracts. They can do movies and they can do radio and they can do cartoons. And we just use them. He says, yeah, but I can do more. I said, I'm sorry. That happened for two years. Finally, that guy died. And a fellow by the name of Treg Brown took over, who was the editor and sound effects man. He said, my gosh, Mel, that was a great audition. And he took him upstairs during a Christmas party to meet the directors at Warner's Cartoons. And from that day on, he started to do every cartoon voice that you knew from Warner Brothers. But something happened when he went up to that party, right? He gave the little audition, like an audition tape at that time. In front of everybody, just started. And he went nuts. And they realized, wow. He says, what are you doing next week? I remember uh, Frizz Freeling or Chuck Jones, one of the great animators, said, what are you doing next week? And he says... Well, I Working can make it. I think I can make it. <laughs> <laughs> so he finally talked him into putting his name on to get credits on the movie. And that's how his name became. And his so name famous. became synonymous with the voices of Warner Brothers, all those voices. And the radio people went to the movies. Movies were so popular, million, 20, 30, 40, 50 million people a, a week would see movies in this country. Because there was nothing, there was no television. It was just radio, and they saw the Warner's characters because they made so many more cartoons than Disney or any of the other companies at that time. They saw Mel Blanc, and they said, "Gee, this guy's doing all those voices on my show." So, all these wonderful people that had radio shows—not only Jack Benny and George Burns and Gracie Allen and Red Skelton, names from the past, Abbott and Costello, Dagwood and Blondie—they all brought him on as one of the voices on the show, or a number of voices. With Jack Benny, he did seven or eight different voices. Sponsorship and, and commercials, that was a big part of entertainment in those days. Yes, uh, the inter- that's why we did entertaining commercials. At that time, like in radio days, the advertising agency was the king, and they could hire who they wanted to. In radio days, the advertising agency actually produced the radio shows, and that's why you heard of things like the Lucky Strike show starring Jack Benny, the Chevy show starring Gina Shore. It was always sponsor first, star second. It was the Chevy show, the Lucky Strike show... It was Lucille Did Ball. He smoke it was the Philip Morris show, by the way. It was instead of the, this. Uh, De, uh, I love Lucy. Yeah. It was the. Uh, I think. It, oh yes, the Philip Morris show with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Yeah. Did your dad smoke? Show. He smoked since he was nine years old, till the time when he had uh, a congestion problem. He had COPD. 
Yeah. And they said, You're gonna, we want you to stay on some oxygen when you can. And I says, Dad, I made up the story. The doctor says, you have to stay on oxygen all the time. And if you stay on oxygen and smoke, you're going to blow up the house. So he quit smoking. But he was... That was a good trick. Yeah. <laughs> he was already 75. But just the idea that <laughs> yeah. he had this beautiful voice that he would be... He was a smoker. Risking it. Oh, yes. From nine. From nine years old. He was what was his cigarette of choice? Well, it depended on the radio show. This is oh, really I see the sponsors. You, if, when you do 18 radio shows, five of them are probably cigarette sponsors. And the cigarette guardians, the guardians What's of the a cigarette, cigarette guardian? That was a guy that <laughs> they said guardian. They were really guards. They were stationed at every radio program if it was sponsored by a, by a uh, cigarette to look in the pockets of the upper pockets of everybody to make sure that if it was a Lucky Strike show, you were smoking Lucky Strike. If it was Pell-Mell, you were smoking Pell-Mell, Camel, Chesterfield, whatever it is. The Chesterfield Supper Club, for instance. If you walked in there with Lucky Strikes, the, the guy would actually, he'd go up to you and crush the package of Lucky Strikes, <laughs> take it out of your pocket, and put Chesterfields in there. I mean, that's how tough sponsorship was in those days. So my dad was a smoker, whatever, whatever show he went to, he had to change cigarettes and go to the next show. So being, being his son, you must have met some extraordinary people. The people who were the it people in Hollywood of the day. Oh, yes. And most of them were just plain wonderful also. And even uh, I would see them later on because we gave a, a start to a lot of people. Robin Williams, for instance. You, really? Yeah. What was that story? Robin was great. <laughs> the story of Robin Williams is terrific. Because I had seen him at the comedy club on Sunset Boulevard. And he was just mind-boggling. He was, he was otherworldly, right? I oh, mean, yes. his performances were yeah, he like was, nobody had ever seen anything like and that. And he would do so many things together that it didn't matter if this joke was not great and that one wasn't because this one was and that one was. You know, it was just, he, uh, he was uh, uh, amazing. He didn't have an agent at that time, but I got in touch with him. He lived in San Diego at that time. And I said, Robin, we've got a commercials here for the uh, Las Vegas Convention and Authorities. It's good campaign going to be running in all of the United States, and it's about the Las go to Las Vegas for your convention. So he said, gee, can I work? I'm going to be working with Mel Blanc. I said, yeah, Robin, you are. He says, well, I've got this van, this Volkswagen van, and I'll drive it up uh, what day do you want me? I says, how about Wednesday at, you know, 10 o'clock? Is that okay? What year are we talking here? Oh, gosh. 70s? 70s, yeah. Just before Mark and Mindy. And he said, uh, I'll be up there probably. It'll take me a while. I'll leave at 8 and I'll be there at 10. I said, okay. I get a call about 9 o'clock. He says, my van blew up. Says, Your van blew up? He says, Yeah. I got it in a gas station here. I don't know what to do. I says, I'll tell you what, call a cab. We'll pay for it. And you come up and do the shtick, do the commercials. He did. But it took him about, just like Jonathan Winters, it takes you about an hour and a half to calm him down before he gets in front of the microphone. But he finally gets in front of the microphone with Mel. After he does all this, my dad is laughing. We're all going crazy. Your dad loved him? Oh, yes, right from the beginning. But even to the day that he died, if I'd ever see him, he'd always thank me really? for bringing him up there uh, to, uh, to do. Such a loss, right? Oh, uh, what an incredible loss, yeah. What a, what a mind. But there were so many wonderful, funny people that we had up at Big Bear. We have a cabin up there 
we, by the way, we have the best lot on the lake and it was 600 bucks in 1946. <laughs> and the house probably cost another 4,000 to build. We have that same place now. It's like a small museum <sighs> with all the material and all the photos and the, uh, all the furniture that Jack Benny and George Burns and Lucille Ball and all these Lucille people. Lucille Ball? You, all, you, you got oh, to meet her as well? Oh, I knew Lucy, yeah. Sure. Really? I got to sit on Gracie Allen's lap with uh, George Burns <laughs> sitting next to me here during the sh because I used to get to go to all the radio shows. But uh, we'd go up to Big Bear and uh, all these people would come up there and it was, it was really, really wonderful. Even Elvis Presley. Did you know that I that about Elvis Presley? Did you know? <laughs> so my dad used to get phone calls every day from weird people that would say, "Hi, I'm Jimmy Stewart," or "Hi, I'm John Wayne," or "Hi." And you would be picking up the phone. <laughs> yeah, and I another one. I'm sorry, John. He's not in right now. Can I get, take your number? <laughs> no, it's okay. I'll call back. <laughs> so I pick up the phone, and it's Elvis Presley in Big Bear. Now he says, hi, this is Elvis. I'm doing a film up here in Big Bear. Can I come down and see Mel? Now, I had met Elvis several times, so he knew me just vaguely. Has this got anything to do with the fact that you had a dog called Elvis? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my wife and I both like Elvis Presley. Okay. So uh, he says, I'll be, he says, I'm going to come down in my, uh, I'll be in a black uh, com uh, convertible Cadillac. I'll see you in about 10, 12, 12 minutes. And I says, well, wait a minute, Elvis. You, do you, you want to talk to Dad? He says, okay, give me. So I says, Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to talk more a little bit about your growing up and growing up with your dad. And you told that wonderful story about Robin Williams, Elvis Presley. But did I hear you, you used to walk with Peter Sellers as well? Well, that was an interesting thing, yes. I, he used to come I into the Beverly... That. Oh, he I was just wonderful. I love him, yeah. And my dad loved him, oh yeah. Was he as funny in real life as he yes. was in his characters? He, he was all, darker or something. That's right, he was darker. Because he was, in astro he was in astrology. He was bugged with astrology. Astrology was his life. If uh, the moon was not in, you know... The right phase. Venus wasn't in blue jeans or whatever it might have been. Yeah. Uh, then he wouldn't work that day. So the directors, I remember... Must have talking, driven them crazy. Talking to one of his directors, it just drove me nuts. He says, I finally had to get the astrologist off the set because the astrologist would say, wait a minute, Peter, it's three o'clock. The moon is just Lined up rising with Pluto. up. And Peter would stop. So Dave Schwartz, the director, said it drove him just absolutely crazy. What was crazy. all that about? I, he just believed in astrology to yeah. the minute. What, he was worried that his work wouldn't be good if he performed at a certain time? I guess, time. or he thought he was going to be erased from the earth. Who knew what he thought, you know? But, but why would he call you? I mean, you, you, He'd be at the Beverly Hills and say, I'm here now, come on by. Really? Yeah. I and don't know you guys why. just walk around the block and... Yeah, we're just down Sunset to the border of Beverly Hills and then around and back and back to the Beverly Hills Hotel. You're one of the few people that can speak to what Hollywood was like in the old days and what Hollywood is like today. There are fewer and fewer people who remember those days. It's amazing how, you know, historical people in the movies are not like when we grew up. Because when we grew up, there was the big screen. There was no, for me, there was no television. So the stars were far and few between. Now they're on, you know, 2,000 channels. You get stars in every area. So these stars were 
immense stars at that time. They were almost godlike. Yes, and they were huge. When you saw them, they were 30 feet, you know, or what is it, 30 yards wide and yeah. 20 yards tall. So it's a whole different kind of thing. And uh, the stars that I met at that time, were they were really amazing people like Jack Benny and George Burns and people you asked about, Shelley Berman. and, and uh, Well, well Shelley Berman, for, for those who don't know, an amazing comedian, his timing was incredible. Yes, and Bob Newhart. And Bob Newhart. And records. You see, I, I grew up without TV. So my introduction to that comedy or comedy in general was through records. And was that a big thing back then? Is that how records were huge? And that's how kids, when I was 10 years old, my dad was the biggest selling artist for Capitol, bigger than Nat King Cole and bigger than Frank Sinatra because he had kids' records. So Bugs Bunny, Porky, Daffy, Tweety, Sylvester, and the whole gang were on these kids' records. He made about 100 kids' records, and they were huge selling. They sold 15, 20 million copies. And so I grew up with him doing these voices and listening to radio, which is a short area of time when you think of radio yeah 1920 30 40s by the time 50s radio was pretty well gone to television by that time as far as dramatic shows or comedy when's your 80th october so when you think about becoming 80 you've had this incredible life what what do you look forward to how do you think about life going forward do you think of it day to day do you think of it in chunks i think of it day to day we live in the moment. I think both my wife, Catherine, and myself, we live in the moment. Absolutely. You know, you might not be here the next day. So we try to make each minute, each day, very, very, very important and a lot of fun. And if we can laugh throughout the whole day, which we do most of the time, that's the best, that, I think that's the biggest thing. A lot of laughter, a lot of happiness. Yeah. It's wonderful. Well, I, I want to end with a couple of uh, questions, and I know you've, you got sent these questions. Um, I guess the first question I want to ask you is just the last time you, you laughed to the point where your belly hurt. <laughs> Probably this morning when I stood front, in front of the mirror nude. Okay. <laughs> Were so, you alone at the point? You know, well, I thought... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't someone laughing along with you, was there? I thought I saw Albert Einstein with Barry Sheck's nose. I don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> I just got the worst visual just then. <laughs> okay, and uh, a, ro a road trip across America. Anybody from history that you could take? Well, I'd like to take the cartoon characters with me, but from history. Yeah, well, you first could of take all, your I dad, needed, for instance. Oh, yes, yeah. I would take my dad. I would probably take a driver like Dale Earnhardt so I'd get to the place I'm going to. Yeah, okay, I want to make good. sure that I got a He's driver He's an interesting there. guy. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how interesting. Well, you know, I think most people are going to say Shakespeare, yeah. Jesus Christ, right. you know, uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, and that's very intellectual and everything, but I'm not really an intellect, so I'm not going that route. So who's in the car? So, so Don Rickles for comedy. Oh, man. If you're going to take a oh. road trip, you want the first person, even a driver, to know what he's doing. Yeah. I think I'd take Don Rickles. And probably for music, I'd take Elvis Presley. Perfect. You know, why? Then you'd have a road trip, a fun that sounds, road trip. That sounds like a road trip. <laughs> All right. And, and then the last question, Noel, is if, if you knew you were going to take your last breath tomorrow at midnight, what would you do with your last day on earth? Well, I would probably rent a helicopter and take Kat and myself for a ride up the coast because there's nothing more beautiful than going up 
the Pacific Ocean coast all the way up to Monterey, and then turn around, come back, and then probably take our rowboat out to the middle of the lake when there's nobody on it and the sun is going down and ride off into the sunset and say with our little doggy and say, it's been a great ride. And that's it. That's what I would do our last day, I think. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think it's been a big pleasure talking to you. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of yours. So. Oh, well, I'm a big fan of yours. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I, and also, I should go, uh, the, 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 that's all, folks. Of course you should. Why not? If you have a really cool story that you want to share with us, then why not share it? Maybe you'll become my next guest. Don't forget, you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com.